Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 29th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I'm still in Aspen, Colorado, and Michael Warren of the Weekly Standard is still in D.C. How are you? Thanks for rubbing that in, Charlie. I appreciate that. You're out, out there in, uh, in beautiful, uh, what the foot, uh, you're in the Rockies, basically. So, you know. Don't hate me. Don't. Yeah. Okay, so here, here's my adventure from yesterday. I actually Googled drugstore near me. Because I needed to get uh, some some sunscreen and some other you know stuff you don't need to know about. But um, so it's very simple, you know, drugstore near me, and they pointed out this place that was, you know, probably about uh, you know 200 yards from from the hotel. And I of course go because I always go where the Google Maps says to go. And I'm find myself standing in front of, on Main Street, basically a cannabis shop. You know, stay high, Colorado. Well, you can't turn around then. I mean, you've already made the walk all the way to the dispensary. I mean, how can you – you've got to walk and, through and, the door and buy something, right? Well, I did stand there. I will admit it because they were talking about, you know, the, the biggest collection of, uh, of edibles in Aspen or whatever. <laughs> and I did actually step there and I went, you know, I'm, I'm here in Aspen. It's completely legal. I have no philosophical objection to it. Maureen Dowd actually wrote one of her most memorable comments. Do you remember the oh, Maureen Dowd? Oh, having, I, um, I was just I was just going to say that you could have had a Maureen Dowd moment and and or and, not and, 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 yeah. and yeah, well, right. I mean, didn't she have like one small bite and sort of went into um, well, went no. Into this... See, she didn't she didn't understand that you don't eat the whole bar. Right, right. So that's, she had oh, that's one right, small that's bite. Right. Figured, hey, there's nothing. Had another small <laughs> bite. Figured, hey, there's nothing. Had you know, and you know, ends up eating the whole bar. Feels nothing. Orders a Chardonnay from room service. By the time the guy gets there, she's in a fetal in the fetal <laughs> position. <laughs> Just, and only later did you realize, no, you're not supposed to eat the whole bar. You know, usually these it's are dangerous. These are like stories that are uh, that are told at like college reunions. You know, years later, as sort of a hey, remember that happened. You usually don't write these things up for your New York Times column. But you know, that's just that's uh, that's just me. But I was thinking this would be a piece for the Weekly Standard. You know, the Weekly Standard has run some pieces very, very critical, right, of the legalization of marijuana. And I figured, you know, this could – I could I could claim <laughs> this was some sort of journalistic effort and do it. And then I thought, you know, this is one of those moments, risk versus reward, upside <laughs> versus downside. And – and I passed on it. So, so you're, uh, no, you're, I, you're, I, I, you're not I, high. I, I went to the frozen yogurt stand, had some frozen yogurt, and you know, and and then now wistfully we'll be thinking what could have been. So you're not high right now, is what you're telling me. I am. Okay. I am. All not. right. All right. Okay. Yeah, really right. not high right now, with <laughs> exception of caffeine, to which I am actually addicted. The the, the ultimate gateway drug. All right. So let's uh, let's continue talking about uh, the the subject that, of course, is consuming Washington. The uh, the fallout from the retirement of Justice Kennedy, I, I as we mentioned yesterday during the podcast, the level of hysteria, um, emotional reaction, you know, would, would normally we'd say it's extraordinary, except it's almost become the norm. But it, it, it does seem to have ratcheted up. So give me some sense right now of the state of play, Democrats lining up one after another, saying we have to find a way to stop this they can't, though, can they, Michael? Well, can't. You can never say can't, right? I mean, there there is a way uh, if if you just sort of look at the sort of try to game out the possibilities here. If every single Democrat um, votes against the nominee that Trump nominates, and if they're able to pick off enough Republicans, it's like I think they need two or three. I, I don't know the math perfectly, but they would need to pick those those people off. Then. You could conceivably stop it. The question really is, and I think uh, you've answered it, is 
Is that really likely? Is that even in the realm of truly possible? And yeah, I, the Democrats need to they, – they cannot stop it on their own. They would need at least one. Isn't it just, just basically yeah, one with, I, with John McCain out? You would need one Republican, and then all of the Democrats, including the red state Democrats – would have to uh, to hold firm, but and and that's that's the that's the way it would have to work, correct? Yeah, that, that's that's their playbook at this point, and um, I think the hysteria is sort of a subconscious realization that that's very unlikely. Um, and and so what you're seeing, it's I mean, it's weird, Charlie, because so Anthony Kennedy on the one hand is a great hero of the left. Of course, he was um, the deciding vote in the uh, in, in the famous gay marriage. Uh, legal legalization uh, a case a few years ago. Um, he sided with the left side of the court on a number of other uh, issues that they care about. Um, and, and all of that seems to have been stripped away uh, because of his decision to retire. I mean, the guy is 81. Um, he's uh, he, he is I wouldn't say he's a down the line uh, uh, liberal or conservative. I mean, everybody knows he was the swing vote, uh, mm-hmm. but I think he does. Uh, I think he sort of temperamentally leans conservative. There's a president who's likely to nominate a uh, another justice uh, who is conservative, uh, and uh, he takes the, the he makes the decision to to retire. And it's as if. Uh, none of the great things that he did for the left uh, have ever mattered, and he is now uh, enemy number one. Uh, and uh, it's just, I think, reflective of this this frustration that liberals have that um, the 2016 election didn't go the way they not only wanted it, but then the way they thought it uh, should go and would was going to go. And yeah. uh, and and they they haven't come to grips with that. Well, and and you know the, the woulda, coulda, shouldas have have got to be haunting them that 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 he did what Ruth Bader Ginsburg probably ought to have done from the liberal point of view, which is uh, retire when you have somebody that's going to appoint someone who is like-minded. You know, and obviously Kennedy's decision, and I'm sure there are many personal reasons to do it, but obviously it was uh, he made the decision that he trusted the Trump administration or and or the Federalist Society right. uh, to to come up with somebody that he would find con- congenial. Uh, also, I think, you know, if you're looking back from the liberal point of view, you realize that it, as long as Justice Kennedy was on the court, there was at least the hope that you would win some of some of these these closely uh, f- fought cases, whereas it's unlikely that he's going to be uh, replaced by someone just like him. Now, perhaps Justice Roberts will become the, the new swing vote. Now it really could become the Roberts court. But let's talk about I mean, obviously, this is a debate that is going to be consumed by one overriding issue, which is the fate of Roe versus Wade. And there's going to be tremendous pressure on both Republicans and Democrats on this issue. So let's talk about the senators that we need to keep our eye on, the the, the, the three, four, five senators who are going to decide this. Give, give me your sense of, for, let's start with the Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. Right. And, and possibly Shelley Moore Capito, who is nominally pro-choice uh, from West Virginia, but um, is much more willing uh, on those issues to vote with Republicans. Look, I think that um, that's a possibility. Let's go back to the uh, Neil Gorsuch confirmation vote. Uh, Gorsuch got every single Republican vote, including Susan Collins, including Lisa Murkowski's. Uh, and the it was slightly different, right? Because they were voting for a uh, uh, for a conservative on those issues, or somebody we would think would vote conservatively on if Roe v. Wade uh, uh, were were before the court again. 
uh, and uh, but the, he, this person was replacing Scalia, Anthony right. Scalia. This is different because of the swing vote uh, aspect uh, of Anthony Kennedy. Um, but you do get the sense, listening to some of their their rhetoric, uh, some of the ways they've answered questions, is they're at the very least reserving judgment on whether or not they will have a litmus, litmus test. And I believe it was Susan Collins who sort of downplayed the idea uh, in an interview somewhere in the Capitol this week that um, – she even thinks of it in terms of those litmus tests, although she could change her mind, I suppose. Um, those are the two really, I think, to watch. Um, but one hallmark of the Mitch McConnell era, uh, and you could say a lot uh, as a conservative, you could say a lot that you don't like about Mitch McConnell, but he's done a very good job of holding his conference together uh, despite uh, a lot of those difficulties and despite the sort of wide ideological gaps between some of those members. Um, I think uh, I, I, I would be – I think to, that is the harder – uh, uh, part of this democratic uh, uh, effort uh, to stop whoever this nominee is is getting those Republicans on yeah. board. Well, you, you you make a good point. I mean, Mitch McConnell has been, and again, whether you like him or not, like him. Let's face it, he's been incredibly effective on this particular uh, issue. And in terms of the constitutional role of the Senate in advice and consent, I mean, I think that's the way it's going to play out. My guess is that there won't be a nominee selected until there is real advice and consent. You you figure that they will sit down and say, okay, which ones, um, you know, which one of these nominees is most likely to secure unanimous support among Republicans? They will have some input into this one would hope. And I was, I was talking with uh, somebody last night here and I said, you know, the, the extraordinary thing about this selection process, it is in many ways the least Trumpian part of the entire administration because it has been outsourced. This list has been uh, you know, out for some time. It has been vetted. Uh, the Federalist Society and, and, and others have come up with a list that will be would be as would be acceptable to any of the men who might have been Republican presidents of the United States. So this will go through a very, very different process than anything before. Now, I want to st stay with these Republican senators because clearly, you know, you have abortion rights groups, women's groups. We're going to go, um, you know, all the way on this one. I mean, this is the one where they, you know, rightly or wrongly, they believe that this this uh, this seat on the Supreme Court will determine whether or not Roe versus Wade is overturned. The pressure nationally will be incredible on these two or three senators. Will that, you know, is will will that, you know, does that? I mean, when they make decisions, how impactful will that be? in contrast to what Mitch McConnell is going to be doing and, and, and saying to them? Uh, I think it's a factor. Um, it's hard to say right now. I, I agree with you that um, the, the, the pro-choice, the pro-abortion groups will be sort of out in full force. They know what this means. I'm actually a little m more skeptical uh, than, than certainly they are and probably well, some, agree, some yeah. conservatives that um, – particularly for the Roberts factor. I think Roberts much more is a temperamental and institutional conservative rather than a um, – and we've seen this – rather than sort of a political conservative or is almost hyper aware of the fact that he does not want to be perceived as as such. So, But you're, you're right. They will pull, pull out all the stops uh, on this. But it, 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 so at the moment, it's hard to say. It really uh, depends on uh, whether Collins and Murkowski um, uh, perceive uh, uh, perceive what I just described. Do they really think that this is the moment that the pro-choice groups believe it is? Um, and that will be – I think that is what McC Mitch McConnell's 
task here is to say there's so much more uh, at stake here um, that, uh, in fact, on the big issues, Kennedy has been in in the, in, in recent years and particularly in, in this uh, most recent spate of, of decisions has been much more uh, has fallen much more on the conservative side yeah. of things, um, particularly when it comes to First Amendment issues, um, a lot of those those questions, uh, and and I think that's I think that's something that all Republicans in general are in agreement on. If McConnell can really make the case that that this is about more than abortion and more than Roe v. Wade, and also that Roe v. Wade is um, – that is not as consequential for Roe v. Wade's future, um, then he may be able to get them on board. The question is whether or not um, – a, they believe them, and of course, whether or not it's all true. I mean, it, it very well could be the case that uh, that the pro-abortion groups mm. are right, um, you know, depending be. on the yeah. nominee. Well, you know, this is – I was going to, you know, hold off on talking about this. But, you know, you think about how – for how long th- this this one case has hung over all of the Supreme Court nominations, almost as long as I can remember. You know, every single cycle has been, you know, what does this mean for Roe versus Wade, which again is – I think one of the tragedies of of the decision, in, in, because it has, it really has had institutional damage on the Supreme Court. That 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 the number one question that all of these jurists, you know, who have you know a variety of expertise and all of the range of cases that come before the Supreme Court, this tends to be the one that has become the ultimate list, litmus test. Secondly, Roe versus Wade, which I think was a, was a badly ruled case. Um, if, if it was overturned, and by the way, this case, don't even try to make it on the left, but it does not mean that abortion is banned. What it means is that, that it is now up for discussion through the democratic process, through the you know state governments can make the, this choice, and that people can actually now go through the process of discussion uh, and consultation and compromise that countries all around the world have been able to do, but which we have really not been able to do to the full extent because of Roe versus Wade. No, I think this. I, you're totally right about this. The the way, and particularly the way Roe v. Wade has, um, as the longer it stands, and I think that the a pivotal moment in all of this, of course, was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was um, the, the the case before the Supreme Court that uh, in in 1992 that essentially reaffirmed Roe v. Wade, and I think that was a that was a real, if not a death blow, it was a real hit uh, to uh, the conservative view it on, really was, on yeah. Roe v. Wade. And um, it, it, it tells you a lot about um, some, some of the changes and, and why this is so complicated, some of the changes in the way, um, really the revolution that people like, and, and it's really not people like, it is people, the people of Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia, uh, the way they changed sort of conservative judicial philosophy, the way of thinking about this. Um, that that is coming up against this brick wall of um, of precedent and uh, and the and the fact that the longer Roe v. Wade stays uh, as as sort of law of the land, the harder it is to make what is um, to, to make what is a very I think airtight case that Roe v. Wade is bad law um, a, a, against a political case, which is um, this is a, a country that is now used to Roe v. Wade right. being on being the law of the land, and 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 I don't. That's an important distinction. Yes. I, and 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 I think that going back to your point about Justice Roberts, you know, that even if you think it was a, you know bad court decision. It is so much part of the fabric of society. Does Roberts, just, just would Justice Roberts, 
want to be the swing vote which in, in, in reinserting the Supreme Court in, 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 in a sense um, to make a radical change that – Let's face it, the society is not quite ready for. I, again, I mean, I, you, can you hold those two ideas in your head at the same time? I think so it's, it, it's, it's a bad ruling, but overturning it would be so disruptive at this point and so divisive at this point that a guy like Justice Roberts would go, I just don't want to do that. Well, I think that is, I think that is what's up for debate sort of among right-leaning legal Thinkers and um, and I'm not I'm not convinced one way or the other. I mean, I I, I think that um, as you point out, I mean, it is it, 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 very strictly speaking, overturning Roe v. Wade would not um, automatically uh, make abortion illegal across the country, but. I think there would be a lot of states that would uh, very sure. quickly uh, be ready to pass those laws and have governors that were willing to sign it. Um, I think that uh, I agree that Roberts has increasingly viewed his role. As, as sort of protecting the institution. But it's such a difficult task because, as you pointed out, Charlie, Roe v. Wade has done so much damage to the institution of the Supreme Court um, that I don't think it's such a cut-and-dry case that uh, that that undoing Roe v. Wade um, it, it, it's might – I think undoing Roe v. Wade could be like ripping off a Band-Aid. It really hurts at the moment, um, but it, it, it may very well restore – uh, some uh, some sense of order uh, to the Supreme Court in the way that the Supreme Court sort of approaches I, these I, issues. I, I, no, I, pre I appreciate that argument, and, and I guess my position, and I have always been pro-choice. I'm pro-choice. I'm pro-life, and I remain and I remain and uh, remain pro-life. But I guess over the years, because I was very very skeptical that Roe v. Wade would ever be uh, be overturned. Um, my thinking has changed a little bit, and I'm I'm willing to change my mind on all of this, but that. That, that on this issue of abortion, I think that there has been a cultural shift that was very unpredictable in the 1970s. Young people are far more pro-life than they used to be. And I do think that changing hearts and minds and getting women to make and, – and, and, their, and, their, and their spouses or their significant others to make different choices – you know, is is a really viable alternative. You know, let's change the culture, let's change the attitude, let's create a culture of life. You know, and 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 then you know, once that is ripe, you know, make make the move to, to bring the laws into line. You know, but trying to reban abortion in this particular era, I, I I wonder whether or not it really advances the cause of life. But again. I understand the arguments on the on the on the other side, but um, let, let's just go back. I we I sort of interrupted where we were going on 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 the on the vote counting on the Republican side. I think you accurately identified, obviously, Collins, Murkowski, possibly uh, Capito. And by the way, she was asked by a reporter yesterday, does she still re uh, support Roe? She looks the reporter straight in the eye, and then turns and walks away without saying a word. <laughs> I'm getting the sense on Capitol Hill that nobody wants to talk about this right now. That is just like there's this zone of silence. But let's talk about the Democrats, because we do have a bunch of Democrats in red states. You have, you know, Heidi Heitkamp up in North Dakota. You have Joe Manchin in West Virginia. You have Joe Donnelly in Indiana. Correct me if I'm wrong. They all voted for Neil Gorsuch. The pressure on them will be very intense um, from both sides. So how does that play out? Because I will tell you that the Democratic base is not going to be forgiving of a vote for the Trump nominee. On the other hand, you know, um, this is one of those elections where I, I can't see that it will be popular with the general election voter 
for these folks to vote against a conservative justice nominee. So how does that play? I think this is, I think the way it plays, Charlie, is it's much easier to get those three red state Democrats um, uh, to vote against this nominee than, okay. than it was for Gorsuch. I think, okay. How uh, come? well, first of all, uh, a, uh, the Democratic senators, um, Donnelly, you mentioned Donnelly and Heitkamp and, um, and I'm blanking on, on, on the last one that was, uh, Manchin. Manchin. That's right. That's right. Um, they will they will each have their own considerations in their own states, but they they can make the argument um, that this seat is different than the than the Scalia seat that that they voted for for Gorsuch. That this is something that changes the balance of the court. Um, in in their various states, they can make some sort of arguments about concern over um, you know labor laws and some other sort of non-abortion issues. Um, and that pressure that you mentioned is going, uh, from from the left is going to be so enormous. Um, and this is a little counterintuitive, but I, I wonder if the fact that um, it's going to be much more difficult to get those Republicans um, to defect, those two Republicans that we mentioned, um, almost gives these Democrats a little cover to um, uh, to say uh, to, to sort of try to vote uh, 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 the way okay. that their party would like to go uh, and and still not affect the outcome. Um, I'm not saying it's an easy thread uh, uh, to need or an easy needle to thread, but it um, I think there's a higher likelihood that at least one of them and maybe two of them, I think Donnelly and Heitkamp will vote against this nominee. Okay, now this is interesting because what you're saying is that from their point of view, maybe the ideal circumstance is that they all vote no, but uh, the nomination slips through with the unanimous vote of of, of Republicans. So so that you're on the losing side of the issue, you you you've kept your your purity intact, in but people aren't that angry because they got the justice anyway. Well, and I that just, may be the best case scenario if you're Heidi Heitkamp. I just can't imagine that. I think you're right. I think that. I th- yeah. I think this issue is not going to be as potent a political issue once it's once it's done, and it will be done before the elections. Um, it, it, it's it's harder, I think, to make a political case that um, that that you know Donnelly voted against. Um, uh, voted against uh, whoever this the, the the nominee is when you're trying to reach swing voters. When you, if you were trying to reach Republican voters, and um, but uh, you know then 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 obviously that would be that would be something that would um, that would affect him because uh, Republicans will be excited about Trump's Supreme Court nominee. But for swing voters, I, 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 it seems to me that the issues that will affect. Uh, those red state Democrats um, will will not include the Supreme Court nomination, uh, uh, you know, if this nomination goes through. If it doesn't go through, if there's something falls apart um, uh, with with the nomination, if we have another sort of repeat of of uh, Bork, Ginsburg, and then Kennedy as as Reagan had, um, then then maybe it, it remains a political issue. So. What? How would it change the dynamic of this if? President Trump were to throw the curveball by nominating a woman. There are a number of women on this uh, short list, including uh, including the you know uh, from from Notre Dame. Who's what is his name? Coney. Her name Coney. Uh, uh, Barrett. Barrett. Uh, Amy Coney. Oh, Barrett. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, I believe Coney was her maiden name, so it's Amy Coney okay. Barrett. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, now that one. Um, obviously, the you know for the fire breathers that would they would still you know find a way to demonize her, but um, you know you, you could certainly imagine what what a what an extraordinary move it would be with all of this attention on Roe v. Wade to have a female nominee 
No, I think I, I think it cuts both ways. Of course, right? There will be a whole lot of that's a lot of pressure, um, and and uh, risk of your uh, of your sort of personal life uh, being oh, uh, uh, being being strewn through the mud. And um, uh, I mean, when we say these pro choice groups will um, you know throw out all the stops, that that I don't I don't think that lessens because it's a woman. Uh, if it's a pro life or or sort of an originalist woman uh, nominee, I think that in, in many ways it might actually intensify. Um, I think I, I think you're I, I think you're right. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody and saying, well, you know, one, one of the things about this process, of course, is everybody on the list is completely vetted, and their response was, no one is completely vetted. That's <laughs> right. For something like this, and if if the Me Too movement has taught us anything, is that we have no idea. Um, about you know you know what what might be lurking back there, and you know that uh, no stone will be left unturned. Okay, let's talk about a couple of other things, including the announcement. It's, you know, this this again this week. When you think about all the major stories, I mean, you know, starting from Monday to where we're at now, that uh, President Trump uh, has has announced a summit with of all people Vladimir Putin in of all places Finland. Now, I don't know what percentage of people actually know what the term Finlandization means, but I don't know. It's, an, <laughs> it's one of those useless things that runs around in the back of my head. So your thoughts on this, because he announces the he announces the the, the summit with a tweet that appears to doubt the Russian interference in the 2016 election, which once again is breathtaking, given the unanimous opinion of U.S. intelligence agency that not only do the Russians – Interfere in our elections, but their interference and their attack is ongoing. So, give me your thoughts, uh, Michael Warren, on this summit. Well, it's something that's been in the works for some time. Publicly, we've been hearing that President Trump wants to have some kind of summit with Putin, um, and uh, I think in isolation, um, it it might be something that makes uh, sense. Um, but we're not operating in isolation. We're operating in a world where just a couple of weeks ago, the president met with a dictator, a, a straight up dictator. I mean, I would argue that Putin is as well, um, uh, but a totalitarian dictator in Kim Jong-un uh, from North Korea. And afterward, the president declared, essentially declared victory and said the nuclear threat is no more from North Korea, which we know is not true. Um and in fact, we're getting reports that they are improving their nuclear facilities. That shocking! I mean, we did not shocking. win that. We, we did not win that negotiation with Kim Jong Un, and the only person who doesn't seem to understand that is Donald Trump. That's right. Um, the, the this is also an, an environment where the the president is um, really infuriating our allies over issues like trade, over issues like NATO, um, and this is all kind of music to Vladimir Putin's ears. I mean, NATO is this thorn in Russia's side. Um, they've uh, really for the last decade and a half, um, uh, as Vladimir Putin has has uh, gained power in Russia, uh, uh, grown his power in the region. NATO is this kind of uh, annoyance uh, to him, and and he views it um, uh, po possibly reasonably as a threat uh, to him and his influence in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, and you know the president is going around saying, oh, maybe we should get out of NATO as well because NATO really takes advantage of us. Um, so with all of that, with that environment, and what you said, Charlie, about um, his insistence. Um, uh, at, at, at his insistence that there was no Russia meddling, um, which I think is, in, I, I'm not conspiratorial about this. I don't think that this is, you know, he is uh, a, a puppet for the Putin regime and all those sorts of things. I think he views it just simply as um, 
uh, calling out uh, himself and his his great victory in his own mind uh, and sort of attributing it to somebody other than himself um, and that that angers him of course that it's not that, that doesn't have to be true but I think that's how the president views it yeah, so well perhaps but his 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 unwillingness to criticize Vladimir Putin continues to be one of the uh, the, the extraordinary uh, markers of this administration and, and and you're right you can imagine what the private conversation will be like like don't sweat it I don't think you interfered in the election I agree NATO is a is a uh, is, is a burden if if Vladimir Putin if you sort of reverse engineer this if Vladimir Putin intervened in our election in order to sow doubt and chaos um, you know job job well done if his uh, if his mission was to weaken the bonds between NATO and the United States um, you know what extraordinary success he's had so far and of course we get this report today that apparently the president in private has been saying that he wants the United States to drop out of the World Trade Organization has apparently brought this up dozens and dozens of times and his aides are pleading with him do not do this but we kind of know that that uh, in this phase of the presidency if the president gets an idea in his head you cannot rule out the possibility that he would do that I think so, so. I mean we 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 not only have We've seen what happened with the G7 summit. We see, you know, his rhetoric about that NATO is as bad as NAFTA. Um, I I, I will say that that this summit troubles me as much as the North Korean summit troubled me. I uh, agree with you 100 percent, Charlie. Um, And it worries me for a reason as well that we haven't gotten to, but I think is so important, which is the question of the Middle East. And it's something that um, in particular in Syria, um, uh, the Syrian civil war has really been a boon for Russia's growing influence in that region. They are an ally. Putin is an ally of uh, Bashar al-Assad, who is uh, killing his own people and sowing all sorts of um, disruption within that part of the world, uh, allowing uh, the bad actors of Iran, who the president um, uh, correctly identifies as as bad actors um, uh, throughout the world, Iran, that is, um, allowing them to have more influence in the region as well. Uh, and the president views Vladimir Putin not as a um, not even as a, a an ally to keep it safe distance in this particular uh, uh, fight to fight ISIS, which is what really the United States and, and Russia are working on together in that region. I think he views um, Russia as a broader ally and sort of a great fight against uh, against uh, you know Islamic terrorism. Um, when that's not really Russia and Vladimir mm. Putin's uh, chief role. They, they they Putin is an expansionist. He wants to expand his influence, and he's expanding his influence in the in, in the Middle East at a time when we have a president um, who is following another president, I should add, uh, Barack Obama, uh, who are looking to pull our influence in the Middle East back. And I think that's very, very dangerous. Um, and I, that worries me just as much as these other concerns we have um, uh, going into the July 16th Helsinki uh, summit. <laughs> You know, I, that you make a really good point. I had a conversation with somebody um, who I can't name, but he's very, very knowledgeable on foreign policy, who was saying that, you know, part of the, the difficulty of talking about these issues is that, you know, it, the, the, Barack Obama made so many bad mistakes that, that he failed in so many ways, you know, including with Syria, including with, with, with Russia, uh, including with uh, with China in some respects. And and yet that doesn't mean that Trump is not feeling in different ways. In, in, in fact, We've replaced the most cerebral president with the most glandular president, and you can fail by being too cerebral. And obviously, there are risks to being too glandular in your responses as well. 
So um, this is uh, this is this is a perilous time. Okay, in the few minutes we have left, uh, we had another mass shooting. This one, of course, uh, has a new wrinkle that was targeting journalists at a small newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland, in in your backyard. I thought the extraordinary couple of extraordinary things about it. Number one is that the journalists there put out the newspaper today. I, there was a tweet yesterday. Somebody says, we're going to put out this damn newspaper, despite the fact that there were f- five uh, dead. And, of course, uh, anytime there's a shooting, you have the usual debates about guns and about people who are crazy. Uh, but also there are people saying, you know, let, let, let's stop referring to reporters and journalists as enemies of the people and using words like fake news. Uh, any, any thoughts about this, Michael? Well, it's it's complicated because it is. Uh, <laughs> I know understatement of the, of the <laughs> century. Um, but I mean, in this particular case, this terrible case of what what happened at the uh, at, at the Capitol Gazette uh, offices in, in Annapolis was a um, particularly uh, I think deranged and disturbed man with a particular vendetta against this particular paper. The Capitol. and he was well known to them too. Well known, he had sued yeah. for defamation. Um, these sort of ridiculous lawsuits, um, and so it was targeting a specific uh, outlet. Uh, and and so it, 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 I think it's difficult, or at least it's complicated, to sort of extrapolate out uh, something, uh, what you alluded to there at the end of your question right. about, about the broader concern that I think is real about, uh, uh, the denigrating journalists and, and, and calling them fake news. So, um, I sort of want to silo that off and say, look, this is a very particular, um, incident and, um, it's, it's a really terrible thing, um, that happened. I will say on the other hand that this guy, I don't, I, I know his name. I don't, I, I just don't want to say it. I just don't right, think don't, there's yeah, any, right. any benefit of, of saying these people's mm-hmm. names, um, is that he, seems to have um, co-opted some Trumpian language. If you look at the Twitter feed that I believe right. we now know is his Twitter feed, um, he co-opted some of the language of President Trump against the media, uh, uh, almost as sort of um, um, an, uh, a post facto justification um, for his years-long vendetta against this newspaper. Um, and I think that that is a minor uh, but important part of this story as well. Um, well, and it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier this week, you know, the danger of this sort of rhetoric and, and, and the enabling of people who might be unbalanced. So, you know, I, you're, all of your caveats, I think are exactly right. But again, it's also a reminder of what, uh, you know, Jonathan Last wrote about, that, you know, the violence is always sort of summer, simmering beneath the, the, the surface. And, and you know, certain kinds of rhetoric, rhetorical tropes can, can open that or you know, peel the scab off, um, you know, and, and, and perhaps push people who are already near the edge over the edge. So you're right. You cannot blame the, the rhetoric for this. But – this is a good reminder, given how intense things are getting, given the fact that we had a year ago, we had Republican congressmen shot, you know, shot down while they were practicing baseball. You know, g- given the, you know, the, the, the uptick in, in, in emotionalist, in-your-face rhetoric, this is just another moment to, uh, you know, remind ourselves that the words matter, these postures matter, and that the world uh, is, is, in fact, can often be a very, very dangerous place. Yes. And also, and I think I'm reiterating something I said on the podcast earlier this week, that leadership really matters. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of conservatives are angry about the way the liberal media treats them and treats the people they vote for and treats the views that they uh, that they have. And I get it. I I 100 percent get it. And in many ways, I share that frustration because um, because I uh, am a conservative and have conservative views. Um, but I think that it's up to leaders 
um, to channel properly that that anger, that right. frustration, and not, not to, to stoke de- it, not to stoke yeah. it, not to demagogue it, and not to take uh, advantage of it for their own personal gain. And I think that's what we've seen from President Trump here. Um, he's he's been helped by some really hysterical reactions from some parts of the mainstream media to him and his presidency. But it just does it doesn't none of it excuses um, the people who we have in leadership positions ought to be acting like leaders and ought to be um, standing up for something that's um, bigger than their own political ambitions or their narrow political interests. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And I, and I certainly don't want to uh, cast the media in, in, in terms of, of, of victims here. But, you know, I, if, if you talk to people who are out on the campaign trail, who go gone, you know, around, you know, been at these at these at the rallies where the president actually encourages the crowd to turn on reporters and they will target individual reporters, you know, very few of them will will say this in public, but but they they you know there's a there is a level of being frightened. Maybe that's not the right word, but there's there's a there's a sense of alarm. There's a sense of danger. There's a sense of what are we playing with here? And as you pointed out, and this caveat is important. You know, be careful about connecting the dots to this particular incident. But you can certainly understand why we're having this debate right now. And uh, I think we're going into a very 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 hot summer. I, um, I, you know, I just, worry about just that. Just superheated yes. by the Supreme Court debate. I, I, I really worry about that. I want to say something that sort of um, uh, offers a positive side to what, what you just said, Charlie, Please. which was Jim Acosta at CNN, who um, uh, I, I really think has been in many ways irresponsible in the way he's covered the White House um, uh, and really not done – himself or his side any favors uh, with uh, with the way he's he's uh, approached this but um, I will say there was a at, at his at the president's event earlier this week um, I guess what was that in Minnesota um, he was uh, sort of being yelled at by some of the people uh, yeah. um, uh, at this rally uh, and 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 maybe some of the yelling he deserved um, but there was a moment where people got up close to meet him and I believe he was um, asked to sign autographs, take pictures. I do think that people meeting people, not to sound, uh, you know, not to sound like um, a, a hippie here, but when you when you actually meet people and have to talk with them and have to sort of face them face to face, that they they actually become human beings, which they which they all are. And I think that which which comes as a surprise, apparently. No, you don't sound like a hippie. You sound like Mister Rogers. I know. Uh oh, gosh, I, that's which, like, which we all could use a little Mister Rogers. I, I agree. I agree. So I I just think that 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 and and oh, oh, one more thing I wanted to say about this, which you mentioned the top, at the top of this segment. I think it's so cool that that the Capital Gazette uh, or the, the Capital put out a paper today, um, I, and it just goes to show you. I don't want, I don't want to sort of put journalists on a pedestal or even these journalists, but um, you know, particularly local papers, it's just. It's just what they do. It's they, mm-hmm. they put these papers out every day because it's what they're supposed to do. They have a responsibility to their advertisers, um, and um, I, they think they feel a personal responsibility to cover the news uh, and and to put out a paper every day. I was not surprised at all when um, when I heard about uh, that they were going to do that, and and I saw that they did. And I just think um, you know it's it's a great it's a great thing, and I and I'm glad to see that not only journalists but a lot of people in Annapolis and Maryland and, and I think around the country mm-hmm. are sort of coming out and and really feeling for for these people because they're public figures um because they work for a newspaper and the internet has sort of heightened the way that you you can connect you can find these people um and and i think it's something that maybe we could all take a deep breath and just realize these are these are people too they're hardworking people too and and um and and unfortunately it can be really dangerous out there 
Yeah, Michael Warren, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back next week.